And now I'm going to read from Zechariah, from chapter 1, and verse 18. This is, um, this is the vision number 2. And I looked up, verse 18, I looked up and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Paul and I uh, lived in Birmingham for 10 years before we were called back to Chessington to um, help with um, uh, our old church for 14 months. And uh, during that time, our opportunity to stay, to stay and live in Chessington came, became available. And during that time, we had the joy and privilege of, um, of launching what was known as the Emmanuel Epsom. And so when we came back permanently to live in this area, um, we, um, we thought we would come and serve at this church. So we've been here for a few years. And because our son-in-law is the pastor and our grandchildren often are found here, it was a bonus. But we lived in Birmingham and as you drive into the city of Birmingham, on any of the major roads, but not least uh, the major road that we live near uh, in Sturchley in South Birmingham, you can see giant uh, inscriptions declaring the glories of our culture. There's one opposite the bus stop in Sturchley on the Persia Road at, uh, where we lived, and it states in clear terms what are regarded as some of the finest features of our culture. Uh, it's a remarkable billboard <coughs> because it's got uh, rotating panels, I suppose they're three-sided, <coughs> and every now and then they all turn at the same time and the advertisement changes from one thing to another. So sometimes it states in clear terms, uh, the virtue of owning a mobile phone. Sometimes uh, it, it, it tells you that you ought to be driving this particular model of car. Occasionally, it, uh, it says that if you buy a certain product that you spray, that men spray under their armpit, they will immediately become irresistible to women. Didn't work for me. Uh, and these billboards shout to everybody who uses the A441, you are a consumer in a consumer-driven society. Well, on a very different road, in a different culture, 2,500 years ago, there was a semi-permanent billboard. It proclaimed the glories of the culture. It was carved in stone, a bit like that Mount Rushmore thing that um, there is in the United States. This, it was carved in stone. It stood 328 feet, nearly 100 yards above one of the main roads that led into the city of Babylon, which is in modern Iraq, it declared the military victories of Darius 
the great king of Persia. He praised his courageous deeds, uh, his victories over 19 military armies, over nine rebel leaders. It announced that the empire uh, that he had established was now at peace and was enjoying quiet and would be established for many, many years. The empire of, empire of Darius. And small copies of this um, tableau were sent uh, by, by messengers to all the nations that had been subdued by the armies of Persia, basically saying, you belong to us now, pal, so get used to it. And one of these conquered nations was uh, Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, northern kingdom, Samaria, had long ago been destroyed and invaded by the Assyrians, and Judah eventually succumbed to military in inven uh, invasion as well. And this, um, when this book is produced, when Zechariah is produced, it was written, it was around about 520 BC, about 500 years before the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and in this time, Judah, which is about the size of Lancashire by this time, has possibly about 50,000 inhabitants. So the kingdom of God looks pretty shrunken from what it used to be in the glory days. Uh, this Judah is trying to recover from generations of military defeat, economic ruin and disaster. Uh, she'd known national humiliation as thousands of her gifted citizens were taken off into Babylonian exile, thousands and hundreds of miles from home. Now, by the time we get to 520 BC, a lot of them are coming back from Babylon and they're allowed by the emperor of Persia to come back and they were struggling to repair their capital city. They were trying to repair their temple. They'd returned from exile and now they were trying to restore their capital city and their temple. It was a very sad and demoralizing time for the people of God and it was such a contrast to what they'd experienced under the the famous um, rules of Solomon David and Solomon David was able to announce at the end of his days that uh, there was there was safety on every side of his borders and Solomon of course was famous throughout the Middle East for his riches and his wisdom and his power so there'd been a return from exile of sorts. The walls of Jerusalem were just piles of uh, limestone around the edge of the city. The temple was in ruins. It, was, it had been destroyed completely, hardly a stone left upon another. Many of the best houses in Jerusalem had been sacked and, and set on fire. And uh, what was the God of Israel doing? What was, what was he doing? Was the God of Darius more powerful than the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob? That's the kind of question that Zechariah is addressing as he writes to these people who, 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 for whom the kingdom of God has shrunk down to something the size of Lancashire. It was a ruin and a wreck. Is this the kingdom of God? Well, the eight visions that uh, I mentioned earlier, these eight visions are a prophetic call in chapters 1 to 6 of Zechariah, a prophetic call to look beyond what you can see in the world streets and look instead at what is going on in God's world, in God's kingdom. Rather than what you can see in this world, look at what's happening in God's world in these, in these visions. 
And that's why, the, in one sense, why the, the Lord gave the book of Revelation to the early Christian church and to us, because the beast of religious and political power with its seven heads and its ten horns was laying waste to churches, overwhelmingly powerful, wounding the church, killing its preachers. And this weak and vulnerable church is actually on the side of glory. The, 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 this weak and vulnerable church is actually belonging to a kingdom that will be eternally established in what, what is described as the New Jerusalem when the world's kingdom, the, the, the city of Babylon, will lie in ruins. God's judgment will come, evil will be destroyed, and the everlasting kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will be established. That's the message of Zechariah, and that's the message of the book of Revelation. It's exactly what's going on here, not least in this second vision. Uh, chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. And this little passage of a few verses basically says all right look at look at what's going on in 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 the world but take a look at what's going on in God's world and if you glance back for a moment in verses 15 to 18 of chapter 1 you'll see that the Lord promises to do two things first to bring judgment upon the nations who've harmed his people and second to rebuild Jerusalem and restore her fortune let me just read that I am very angry with the nations that feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with the punishment. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there my house will be rebuilt, and the measuring line will be stretched out over Jerusalem, declares the Lord Almighty. Proclaim further, this is what the Lord Almighty says. My towns will again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and choose Jerusalem. Well, here in this, um, this, this vision that we're looking at this morning, you find first of all an unspoken conspiracy. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, four horns. Zechariah asked the interpreting angel, what do these four horns mean? And the answer comes back, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the prophet is referring to those great powers like Assyria and uh, the Medes and the Persians uh, who have come um, and have invaded Jerusalem and Israel and have caused such terrible damage. He's referring to those powers which have been responsible for in inflicting great suffering upon God's people and their land. Now, the fact that the number four is used indi indicates the widespread nature of the issue. Uh, the Bible loves the number four, the four winds of heaven, the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west. And uh, Israel, over the years, over the centuries, had been attacked from all sorts of nations from every conceivable direction. There was Egypt, there was Moab, there was Edom, there was Assyria, there was Chaldea. There was Persia. The horn was a symbol of power in the Bible. God is sometimes described, as I, in the very beginning I read a little chapter, a little passage, God is described as the horn of our salvation. His, his saving power is mighty. Uh, you've probably seen a video of the bulls of Pamplona. Anybody seen those videos of the bulls of Pamplona in Spain? Men running through the streets of the city. Behind them are several hundred pounds of muscle. 
On top of the muscle are two wickedly pointed horns. Underneath the muscle and the horns are four powerful legs which can carry a bull at a speed faster than the legs of a man who's had too much to drink. And so they're coming after you, these bulls. And these men who, who are out of condition and have had too much to drink are trying to outrun these bulls and they're coming up behind them. The hooves are pounding. The one thing you don't want is one of those sharp upthrusting horns catching you in the buttock or the kidneys and tossing you through the air like a rag doll. When I was courting this lovely lady, we were sitting on the back row of the Roxy in Hollywood. We always sat on the back row because you could have a quiet kiss <laughs> in the dark, in the warm. We were watching a film that was made in Africa. It was, I don't know, I can't remember what it was. But there was a rhino, massive rhino with a wicked horn at the front chasing a man. And he began to try and climb a tree and the rhinoceros came up behind him and with all its power thrust upwards towards his bottom. At that moment, I shouted at the top of my voice and leapt to my feet as though I myself had been penetrated by this, this beast. Uh, <coughs> I had to forget the kissing for a moment. <laughs> but that's the, that's the picture. In the Bible, it's, it's, uh, there's also it's an interesting little imagery, perhaps a reflection of temple imagery, because in the, in, the, in the temple of God in Jerusalem, there was an altar, and on each corner of the altar were four horns. So very often, uh, the, the four horns in the Jewish mind would, re would remind them that uh, not only horns of power, but horns of safety and salvation. But, but here it would, be, it would be regarded as these four horns would be religious and political power that were responsible for attacking and hurting the people of God. Of course that experience isn't... Um, I, I'm sorry, can somebody help me? This, the, the thing is falling away from me and it's going to tip all my goods onto the floor any moment. It's rubbish, anyway, I don't know why I've got it. Um... To many generations of Bible-loving people, it seems as though uh, there, there is a conspiracy going on often in the world. And powers have conspired together to oppose and harm the people of God. I feel that occasionally myself as I look out on the world and see the number of uh, countries in which the cause of Jesus Christ is being persecuted by communism, by Islam, in some countries by Hinduism. And it seems as though they've got together. How could that possibly be? How could communism and Islam get together and decide that they will persecute the people of God? And sometimes the whole experience feels like an unspoken conspiracy. It's as if they've got together and, and formed a plan to, to inflict hurt upon the God of Scripture and his people. And if you look at the second psalm, Psalm 2, you find that that kind of language is, is not unknown in the Bible. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. This is all the various nations of the earth have this one thing in common. They want to inflict damage on the people of God. It's what the Assyrians and the Chaldeans have in common with each other. It's what communism and Mary and many branches of Islam have in common with each other. They want to destroy the influence of the people who love the Bible. Even the television companies 
it seems to me, sometimes seem to have become part of the conspiracy. When was the last time you heard the name of Allah blasphemed on an English television set? When was the last time? When was the last time you heard somebody pour scorn upon the gods of Hinduism? But every day on British television, the fair and lovely name of Jesus Christ is used as an expletive, a casual expletive. It's as if they've joined in. They won't offend the Muslims and the Hindus, but they'll put, those of you who are old enough to remember, Jerry, Jerry Springer and his blasphemous anti-Christian opera on the TV. Publication of some cartoons in Denmark led to the death of their people who were involved in that. And yet the lovely name of Christ is used as a blasphemy. Whether anyone in the media expressing any concern for that at all. Of course the Bible's teaching is that um, behind all these destructive attacks on the people of God is a set of spiritual powers. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against rulers against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places for a little while the lord has allowed them to exercise their influence make their plans lift up their horns but god will hold them responsible for what they have set out to do against his people and against his kingdom there's a strange paradox going on here god gives these powers these four horns these religious and political movements, he gives them power, permission to do what's in their hearts to do, and then he judges them for what they've done. The Assyrians were allowed to inflict huge damage on Israel and her temple and her city, but God sent the hammer of the Chaldeans to destroy them. When they'd ruled for a time, he sent the Persians to overthrow them. And when he'd finished with the Persians, the Greeks came and destroyed their power and then the Romans came and destroyed their power and then the Germans destroyed the first European Union in the form of uh, the, the Vandals and the, and the Goths rising up against the power of Rome we don't want taxation without representation essentially is what they said and Rome the great empire of Rome was destroyed as has the British Empire it's power broken. There's a tremendous example of the principle in the person and life of the Lord Jesus. The Jewish leaders conspired against him. Sadducees and Pharisees, natural enemies, joined forces in order to set out to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ. They were led, they were helped by Judas Iscariot. They made a bargain to bring him to the cross. They, they, they secured the, the permission of one of the greatest empire of the time in the person of Pontius Pilate. They secured the, the permission of the Romans to put the Lord Jesus to death. And behind them are the unseen powers of the heavenly realm. We're told that Satan entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot. He went out into the darkness to do what was in his heart to do. What he did was in, in the plan and purpose of God. But he will still have to pay a heavy price for it on the day of judgment. It would have been better for him if he would not been born, the Bible says. Well, God gave him permission. Satan gave him the motivation. But God will destroy him at the last day. 
and the work of Judas and those he conspired with was used by the living God to, pr to produce the greatest kingdom ever. Accomplished by the cross of Christ, by the cross of the Lord Jesus. This is the God of the Bible. He causes all things to work together for his glory. He plans, he can take an apostle Peter who's weak and sinful and faithless and he can use him for the glory of his saving grace. He can take the apostle Judas and use his betrayal and his apostasy for the establishment of his kingdom. How important it is for every one of us here to be on the side of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. How important it is for each one of us to have a disposition of heart that wants to live for the glory of King Jesus above all things. To be on the wrong side here, to be on the wrong side of this great war is foolish. To be on the wrong side is the greatest foolishness ever known. So these horns of power, these people who speak out against the living God and against his kingdom and against his people, these people who despise the Bible and seek to undermine and crush it, they will have their short day but no more because after their conspiracy comes God's conquering craftsman. That's the second point. God's conquering craftsman, verses 20 to 21. What are these coming to do? He showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw them these, down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Now I find this a surprising image. Because if I'd been writing the Bible, and we're all going to be very grateful that I didn't, if I'd written the Bible, I would have um, had that God, in order to destroy the horns of power, would raise up even bigger horns. My horns are bigger than your horns. But it's four craftsmen who put paid to the power of the pagan forces. Now the Hebrew word for craftsman can be translated carpenter. So you all know where I'm going with this, don't you? It can be translated carpenter or engraver or simply craftsman. These are the men. It's a picture of temple builders, men coming with hammers in their hands. It's a picture of temple builders who come and in the context of Zechariah, they probably meant to see them as uh, the temple builders who are, who are supposed to be at work on the destroyed uh, temple in Jerusalem. These are men who are useful but not necessarily spectacular. Which woman ever said, oh, I want to marry a carpenter? Did Meghan Markle ever say, oh, it's in my heart to marry a carpenter? No, but she went to marry a prince. Did my wife ever say, I want to marry a bank clerk? don't think so. Take the wags, the football wives. They're going to be in Doha. But they're going to be staying in a luxury liner just off the coast. Did anybody ever say, I'd like to marry a professional footballer? Did anybody ever say, I'd like to marry a bank clerk who's five foot five and live, comes from Oldham? No. You need special grace to think like that. Well, these are men who are useful, but not necessarily spectacular. Don't come with swords. They don't come with spears and chariots. They come with the tools of their trade. They're carpenters. 
or craftsmen. They come to terrify and throw down the greatest powers on earth. They, they take apparently weak instruments in order to cast down the powerful and the mighty. That's what's going on here. To build the kingdom of God, built by workmen, craftsmen, men holding hammers and chisels. It's an amazing picture of the nations which oppose the people of God being conquered by very surprising and weak means. This is just what God is like. He loves to confound the powerful by using the weak. He likes to overthrow the wisdom of the world by the foolishness of the message of the gospel. The world sends out, in David's day, sends out a champion who's ten feet tall, clothed in armor. He has a spear like a weaver's beam. He has a mighty sword. He's, he's impossible. He's a champion of the Philistines. When come out facing him, he's God's champion, a fresh-faced teenager, fresh from looking after sheep and, giving, and, and helping the, the ewes give birth to their lambs. And he's, he's not got a sword, he's not got a spear, he's got a, a sling and a few stones. It's an artisan facing a professional soldier, ten feet tall. I was often told when I used to play, the, play football, John, a good big one's always better than a good little one. It always demoralized me, that. Good big one is always better than a good little one. And the only time I played against a, a professional footballer who was six feet one and went on to play for Tottenham and Wales, I can tell you it's probably true. My church secretary in Penn, by the way, once was very upset with me and in the vestry before I went out to preach he looked at me and he said the trouble with you is that you're like all little men Hitler Napoleon <laughs> what is it about the word little that that can be used as an offensive weapon did anybody ever say you're a horrible big man <laughs> no it's always horrible little man I don't know why that is I've got that chip off my shoulder, so I feel better now. <laughs> a good big one is always better than a good little one. And that, but within minutes, Goliath's lying dead. His head has been removed with his own sword. And it's, he's been felled by a single slingshot powered by the, the name of Israel's God. God uses the little weak things of the world to overthrow the mighty. And the same principle is at work. In the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, the political power brokers of the day threatened to crush the infant church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They spoke to the apostles with all the authority of their parliament and they commanded them to stop preaching in the name of Jesus Christ. What did these men do, these fishermen, these, uh, these farmers who, who hadn't a sword between them? They went to a prayer meeting. They went to a prayer meeting to pray that the God of Israel... And, they, uh, uh, and as they prayed to the God of Israel, they quoted Psalm 2 about the nations conspiring together against the Lord and against his anointed. And they asked God to send his power upon them, the power of the Holy Spirit. And they had the gospel of the Lord Jesus on their lips, the power of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. And they went out against swords and spears and crucifixes. They went and crucifixions, they went out to, to speak the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the early church. The, they were carpenters defying soldiers. The horn of Jewish and Roman power against the weak activity of a band of preachers. And within a couple of generations, they'd overcome the Roman Empire. 
with nothing more than a few words that spoke of Jesus and him crucified. The weakness of the cross. The Romans regarded crucifixion as, as something so horrible you never spoke of it in polite company. And yet here is a crucified man, crucified in weakness, nailed to a cross in, in his nakedness, hanging there naked before his mother and the women who followed him. The cross is such a terrible thing. You can't move. You can't get comfort. There's no relief from pain. You're dying. And yet several thousand in Acts chapter 4 were liberated from Satan's kingdom and brought into the kingdom of God. By these carpenters, God uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Or may if you're a Christian here this morning, you're feeling your weakness sometimes, often useless in the face of a great big world of secular strength, take heart. God can and will use you to break down strongholds. It might be to break down Satan's stronghold in one life, Maybe in the culture of your family, your marriage, your school. Maybe you're in school and you're getting a hard time because you love the Lord Jesus Christ, because you go to church on Sunday. And it feels like the people who are doing that are much stronger than you are. and They're more capable of inflicting damage upon your heart. But be strong and be courageous. Be, put your trust in in the God who loves to use the weak things to overthrow and overcome in some special way to overcome the strong, boastful ones. It doesn't depend on how clever you are, you know. It doesn't depend on your strength of personality. It depends on his ability, God's ability, to take hold of weak things and use them for his glory. It's perfectly demonstrated, of course, in the greatest temple builder of them all, the carpenter's son. He came against the kingdom of Satan. He came to save a multitude that no one can count, to conquer them by his gospel. He came to overcome sin and death. We're all under the power of sin. We're all under the power of death. We're all going to die. We're all separated from God's life by our sinfulness and by his judgment. We can't save ourselves. We're helpless to live a life that could ever please God. Not for a single moment. We're helpless. We're weak and helpless. But the son of David came. He overcame sin by living a life of absolute perfection. Not for a single split second. In his thinking or in his speaking or in his behavior. Not for a single split second did he ever fall short of the glory of God. He went in terrible weakness to the cross. Never is human weakness more obvious than on the cross. You can't move. You can't relieve the pain. You can't help yourself. You hang dying and exposed before a watching world. And uh, if I might put it delicately, there are no bathrooms on a cross. If you relieve yourself, it's before a watching world. And in that terrible weakness, the Lord Jesus Christ receives the punishment that our sins deserve. The one who knew no sin was made to be sin, so that in him we might become 
the righteousness of God. And by that terrible death, the power of Satan is broken and sinful people like us are pardoned and adopted into God's family. You establish the foundation of a new spiritual temple. The foundation of the temple is the gospel of the apostles and the prophets. The cornerstone is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And every true Christian, boy or girl, man or woman, who has trusted Christ becomes a living stone in that temple and is built upon that foundation and is lined up with that cornerstone. And the whole thing growing together is a temple uh, for God uh, to live in. Also that we could enjoy a new joy, an eternal joy, so that we could all enjoy life, eternal life. Can you say this morning that you're living your life against that wonderful background? Is your faith and hope in the carpenter? Have you trusted him for your life in this world and for your life in the world to come? Give me the wings of faith to rise within the veil and see the saints above how great their joys, how bright their glories be. I ask them whence their victory came. They with united breath ascribe their conquest to the Lamb, their triumph to his death. Have you invested all that you are and all that you hope to be in the service of this great carpenter who did so much for you?